And uh, prayer, how, how often do you think when we pray that that is prompted by the Holy Spirit? That we say, well, we, we're going to pray. Sometimes we pray and, and we probably are not aware that the, the praying part is really prompted by the Holy Spirit in us. That we might be saying, well, that's just my cognitive decision. But the Spirit of God lives in us and dwells in us. And I believe he moves on us to pray when we're not really thinking about it. We might find ourselves, we might find ourselves praying in the Spirit. And we weren't planning on praying in the Spirit. It's just through the course of our day when our eyes are on the Lord and we're thinking about him and we're worshiping him, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit prompts us to pray for someone and we think that we thought of it. We think we thought of them. I was talking to someone earlier yesterday. I just went into to the world's cheapest lunch cafeteria down here at Sam's. Got one of those very nutritiously balanced hot dogs. But uh, I ran into all kinds of people, and, uh, you know, it, what I thought was a little bit of a break, just some ministry going on right there as people just shared some deep things. And here we are right in the middle of this, and I didn't plan on this. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, there's no doubt that today was ordered by the Lord. And even the person on the other side of that conversation says, this was nothing but God. Because I hadn't seen this person and talked to him in a long time. And they were, they were just in desperate need. And um, praying for them. Paul found some disciples up in Ephesus. This is in Acts 19 if you want to turn there. And um, he found some disciples. He's on a missions trip and he leaves Apollos in Corinth. Which is over on the Macedonian side of of things and uh, he's going inland he's coming inland back through Asia Minor and uh, this excursion takes him into Ephesus and he finds some disciples there some believers there and this is one of the most interesting exchanges I think in the New Testament and it's kind of like partnering with another place because you know we handle things a lot better if God just gives us steps. <laughs> if he tells us, what's step one? Right? The, the, you know, don't you want God to do that sometimes? Tell me, tell me what I need to do next. And then after I do that, tell me what's next. And we, we kind of want this order to where we know exactly. It's kind of like cooking something with ingredients. You like mix this, mix this. And I think sometimes we, we spiritually want things to work that way and God jumbles up the recipe. He jumbles it up. And this is one of those places where God jumbles it up. Paul arrives in Ephesus and he finds these about 12, about a dozen people who are disciples. And I want you to see this kind of, this is familiar territory probably to most of you. But um, I'll pick it up in verse 2 because he looks at them and he asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, how many of you know that immediately messes up somebody's theology? Because what would someone say? When you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit, Right? 
Don't you get the Holy Spirit when you believe? See how, see how problematic this thing is? That we look at this, and our theology is just like, and there's some people's theology, they just want to, well, let's go on to the next verse, because we, we don't want to deal with that right there, because like, what are you asking? Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed, past tense? In other words, he's, a, he's assuming that they've had an experience, and he calls them disciples in verse 1. They're identified as disciples of, of the Lord. And so uh, their answer is amazing, <laughs> It's like, what? We have not even heard about the Holy Spirit. We don't know what you're talking about. We haven't heard about what there's a Holy Spirit in all of this. That's their, and they ask, they say that. That's how they answer that. We, you know, we we haven't heard about that. We haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. And so we ask them a a follow-up question in verse 3. Then what baptism did you receive? Here we go. This is interesting, isn't it? How important in water is water baptism? Well, if you thought it was okay or so-so, this, this ought to just kind of like, well, <laughs> it must be connected. He says, what kind of baptism were you baptized? Well, so we had John's baptism. And what does Paul say back to him? Well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And then he lays this on them. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Now, he's not referring to uh, Paul telling them. He's referring to what John's message was. John told the people that they shouldn't put all their confidence in him, but they should put their confidence in the one coming behind him. Because, you know, he, I, think, I know how some people respond to this. Well, they weren't really Christian. This shows that they weren't really Christians. You know why people say that? It's because their theology goes step one, step two, step three. God can mess up the steps. Or it's kind of like I think in the C.S. Lewis study stuff about somebody becoming a Christian, and they may not even say they're a Christian, but they're like acting like it. Have things that kind of like, like, you know, the, the passage in Corinthians where he says, if, if Gentiles do by their own inner heart what's written on their heart, they are like people of faith. So, you know, people would say, well, they weren't really Christians. Well, that, that's, that's really jumping to a, a conclusion that we don't know. But it seems to me that he considered these people as believers. And so it says this. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And following that, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. About a dozen people in all were right in the middle of this experience. They confessed that they not even heard of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like Robert Morris is the God I did not know. Because nobody talked about the Holy Spirit in, in his early Christianity. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. 
But God can do anything he wants to. (laughs) Because there's like old time Pentecostal people said it goes like this. You're saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit. Step one, step two, step three. What if God decides to fill them with the Holy Spirit before they're sanctified? I think he does it that way more often. Because <laughs> I don't think you ever get to being completely sanctified. So he has to feel, you know, this is why the charismatic movement just kind of threw everybody a major curve. Classical Pentecostal people in the 70s were like, oh, what's going on here? These people cannot be going around speaking in tongues. Because they've got stuff in their life. (laughs) And it was throwing everybody a curve, including one pastor in Jacksonville. was like, oh, we're getting these Episcopalians here, and they're still drinking wine. How does that work? And they see nothing wrong with it. And they're asking me, what's wrong with it? I said, I don't know what's wrong with it. I, You know, don't ask me that. You're pressing me. I'm, I'm like, I'm a classical Pentecostal. You don't do that. So we don't see anything wrong with it. We just at home. I says, you know, I'm caught. I'm, I was caught in that. I'm like, and, and I remember praying one day. Says, Lord, these people can't be filled with the Holy Spirit because of this and this and this. And and I distinctly heard him says, I do not have have to ask your permission before I fill people with the Holy Spirit. And he said it with such force. I said. Amen. I'm glad that's off of me. Y'all speak in tongues all you want to. I'll let God take care of the stuff that, you know, that bothers me. But I believe God was, was doing something to me that he was showing in this passage that you can't just categorize steps. God does things in his way. He does whatever he wants to do. If he wants to fill people with the Holy Spirit that have issues and problems that I think are major issues and problems. That's that's not my business. That's his work. He knows what he's doing with people's lives. You know, just just follow the Lord. Have your own faith walk with the Lord and let God do what he... Well, you don't have to let him do what he wants to do. He's going to do what he wants to do, and it's less stress on you if you just, just back off. And, you know, it was a growth thing for all of us classical Pentecostal people. You know, I grew up in a little bitty church in Children's Alabama and never got above 60 people. Deluge of Catholics, Episcopalians, and all kinds of people in Jacksonville, Florida, where there's an entire Episcopalian church, St. Peter's Episcopalian Church, that the whole place has gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit. The whole place is a charismatic, tongue-talking, anointing people with oil, praying for the sick, Episcopalian church. And just, just down the road at Marietta, near the outside of Duval County, there's a Marietta Baptist church, and the whole church gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and the convention lets them stay in. Yeah, they did. I don't know how long that is. 
the St. Peter's would have these people come in and speak, and they'd call me and says, you want this guy? He's from London. He's a former Catholic priest and his wife, a former nun, and they're baptized. The Holy Spirit says, yeah, send them on here. And this guy was like dry. He was boring. He preached. He read his sermon. And uh, my brother-in-law, Terry Bailey, we had him multiple times because the first time I was like, oh, I've messed up here. This, this, is, this is no life in here. He's reading this sermon. You can't do that. And then you turn that last page. It's kind of funny. Terry and I was behind the platform, and we saw the page, and we saw like half a page, and we was like, oh, good. He's on his last page. But what we said is like, watch these people now sit up in their seat when he does, when he says, amen. And he steps out, and he starts walking out, and starts walking in prophetic and start speaking prophetically to people, and people are getting healed. And 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 th- when things begin to happen, people sit up in their seats. It's like, whoa, boring is over. Boring is over. This this guy was like, he was so dry. It's like, but he was so full of the Spirit of God when he just didn't know how to preach like Pentecostals. He kind of lectured his sermon. But I'm telling you what, when he stepped away from the pulpit, you know, we like, like okay, it's Things are about to start happening here. Watch these people sit up in their seats. Some of them are very uncomfortable. He's walking by. He's getting prophetic words and words of knowledge and all this. And it's like, oh. People don't want to make eye contact with him. It's like, Ooh. The Holy Spirit is, is all spirit orchestrated. This is kind of like Paul is dealing with something here that's hard for us to put into our, our form. They get baptized. He lays hands on them. And they start speaking in tongues and start prophesying. In the midst of the charismatic, well, it's not in the midst. In fact, one of the leading people that catapulted the charismatic movement in the U.S. was a guy named Dennis Bennett. Dennis Bennett wrote a couple books, maybe more than that, but his most recognized book is 9 o'clock in the morning. And then he wrote a follow-up book, How to Pray for the Release of the Holy Spirit. He was pastoring an Episcopalian church in Van Nuys, California in 1960, and he had a personal encounter with the Lord, and he got baptized Spirit. He and his wife, Rita, both got baptized in the Holy Spirit and started speaking in tongues, and he got up and announced it to that Episcopalian congregation. And the Episcopalian church removed him. <laughs> Sent him to uh, another place. And he, and he went quietly. He didn't want to make a scene. The media was, it, it made national news. Episcopalian priest declares he's been speaking in tongues. And he went to another church and he started teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And those people started getting filled with the Holy Spirit. He went to places and, and this, is, this, is what he, this is how he would pray for with people and encourage people to be immersed in the Spirit. And he would go to John 7, and I'm going to go there later on, but he, was, he would say, the Holy Spirit, if you believe the Holy Spirit is in you, but the Holy Spirit wants to immerse you. And so it's not really an external thing that happens. It's an internal from out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of water. That's the Holy Spirit. And he led thousands and thousands of people into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so much so that the Catholic Church didn't know what to do with them because there was Catholic churches 
priests getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, anointing people with oil, having altar calls, maybe doing some of the liturgy, but they were like, Ugh. you know, they, they, were, they were going for it because God had refreshed them in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was moving. I wanted to take you to Acts chapter 8 because there's something similar here. You know, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. You need to have a baptism in, in Jesus' name. Well, in, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is, is stoned. And following the stoning of Stephen, uh, persecution just erupted. It blew up the church in Jerusalem. It blew it up. Most believers in Jerusalem left. Practically all people except maybe the leadership, the apostles, stayed in Jerusalem. But it was so dangerous to be in Jerusalem, believers scattered. And chapter 8 talks about that some ended up in Samaria, and Philip was up there, and Philip was preaching the gospel to uh, Samaritans, and they were getting saved And the apostles in Jerusalem heard about it, and they sent John and Peter up there to help. And this is in the in around verse fifteen. When they arrived, it said uh, they prayed for the new believers. Okay, here we go. It's a little. It's kind of like on the same vein, is it not? Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? You're just like. That's hard for some people to kind of process that. Same thing. This is Acts 8. This is actually before all that's happening in Acts 19. And so Peter, he arrives and he prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They're believers. He said he's praying. They're praying for them to have and receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Baptism matters. Somewhere in all of this, baptism matters because Paul asked him, what baptism were you baptized under? Well, John's baptism. He said, that's a baptism of repentance. You need a submission to the person of Jesus Christ in baptism. Well, they had been baptized already. Philip, they had gotten saved, and they had gotten baptized. And it says they had they'd only been baptized, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They prayed for believers to be immersed with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't say they spoke in tongues here or prophesied, but standing, watching all this was a sorcerer by the name of Simon and whatever happened there, he was so impressed with it, he says, I, I want that. I want the capacity. I want the power to do what y'all just did. And how much is it? <laughs> Basically, like, how much, how much is it for me to do that? I'm willing to buy that ability. And, of course, Peter rebukes him and says, you're, gonna, you're, you're condemned with your money. This is not up for sale. But there was something there that was a tangible evidence of something being transferred to these people who had been, who were believers who'd been baptized under the submission to the Lord Jesus in water but they hadn't had this fullness of the Holy Spirit now when you take both of these instances and they're unusual to say the least do you come away with thinking that just maybe the church leaders in that day and time expected people to have a a discernible distinct experience in the Holy Spirit. 
beyond conversion. I don't think you can come away with any other way of, of seeing it. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? You know, they, 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 this, was, this was so much a mark of the church. It was, it, was the, it was like, this was the church in the New Testament. The church, it was laden with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Even when they went to get leadership, when they had a problem in taking care of the widows, they wanted men who were full of the Holy Spirit. How, how do you know that? How, how could you tell people who are full of the Holy Spirit? There must have been a distinction about that. That there was discernible distinctiveness about being filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist prophesied of this baptism, did he not? He said, I baptize with water. One's coming after me. He will immerse you. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That his baptism would be a purifying baptism. It's kind of like baptism and fire don't really go together. Baptism is in water, and then you got fire over here burning up all the chaff. But he said the baptism of the Holy Spirit would be like a, an immersion in fire. Cloven tongues of fire coming down on all 120 people in the upper room. The church was birthed with the power of the Holy Spirit, the immersion of the Holy Spirit. Whether there was two-year-olds or four-year-olds or six-year-olds, whoever was in that upper room, all of them, by definition, were immersed in the Holy Spirit. And all of them spoke in tongues. It was not anyone left out of that. The evidence was that every single person had a cloven tongue of fire land on their head and out of their mouths came languages that they didn't know but the people in the streets knew. Because they heard them in their own language talking about the wonderful things of God. People had no idea the language they were talking in but it was a language that people that needed the gospel heard. And whether it was adolescents or kids, everybody was birthed in power. The release of the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, let, let me reflect just a little bit on a book that we know as the book that you find justification by faith, right? That great epistle to the Roman church, the Roman believers. In that 16 chapter division of that book where so many wonderful, powerful things are written, in the middle of it is a chapter almost saying, allow me to introduce you to the Holy Spirit. For the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Starts off with, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there's been a work of freedom and liberty for the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit hath made me free from the entanglements of, my, of myself. You know, sometimes I think probably our best prayer maybe is, Lord, save me from me. <laughs> save me from me. Save me from my shortcomings. Save me from my ideas. Save me from me. Save me from my desire to have control. Save me from having it my way and wanting it my way. I will take your way no matter how foolish it sounds or is to me. I think he waits for us to say, just 
take your hands off the steering wheel and let me be in charge here. Because probably one of the most defining control group of people is the category I'm standing in front of you. As pastors, because we we don't want we don't want wildfire. And I've told people before, like, well, you don't have to worry about wildfire until you have fire. We somebody just need to start one. We will try to control it, but you don't have to worry about wildfire if there's no fire at all. And yet this is exactly this is this is exactly how God demonstrates in, in Romans eight the power and the presence, the spirit of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is where? Is in you. The same power, the energy that came into that tomb and came into that corpse forever to be alive, that same power is resident in you. And the only other place in the book of Romans that I think you'll find that the Holy Spirit is even mentioned is chapter 5. And there is an absolutely wonderful verse in Romans chapter 5. It starts like this. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Good word? To have peace with God through Jesus? Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope, the assurance of the glory of God. It's kind of interesting. Yesterday, uh, Julia Cook's grandfather coded and said that it didn't look like he was going to make it. And I'd been up there a few days ago and had prayer with him. And just a sweet man of... of um, man of faith and had a good visit with him but he coded and wasn't expected to make it through the day and I got up there around three o'clock and we prayed and I leaned over I I remember doing this with David Morgan I leaned over and I said uh, Mr. Ham this is Julius Pastor and uh, we're here to just pray over you but I just want to tell you there's there's nothing wrong with your spirit there might be something going on with your body, but there's nothing wrong with your spirit. God's hand is on you, and it's okay. And I tried to, like, covertly lean over and sing softly, Blessed Assurance, because this place was filled with people. I mean, that room was filled. This, this guy was a popular man in this family. There was people all over that room. And they picked up on me singing, and we ended up around his bed singing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And within the hour, he was gone. He had made his entrance into heaven. When you see things like what you're reading in Romans 5 about having the hope of the glory of God, the assurance, the the promise of the glory of God, it helps you face stuff like that. That this is not the end. This is just a sliver. When my dad looked at me and he was fighting bone cancer and, 
And I was in the hospital room there at uh, Baptist in Alabaster. And he looked at me and he said, son, life is but a vapor. And I got all choked up and I said, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) He said, but it is. We're just here briefly. And how briefly it is. But how would you cope with life without the hope of the glory of God? And somebody's asking, how does people cope with stuff like this without Jesus? This is not very well. It's tough enough for us who love deeply and hurt deeply to let go of people we don't want to let go of and release them. But we know in the backdrop of our own mind and heart that this is not final. There is another day coming that we have this resident hope within us. But that's not the only thing that is written in the early verses of Romans 5. This is where I really want to take you. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings but we, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that word poured out means to be distributed abundantly. That the Holy Spirit in our life explodes into our souls with the love of God. With great force, he surges into us so that we can love the unlovable. We can love people. We can reach out to people that, that may not be anywhere externally inviting for us to talk to or engage. But the love of God explodes into our hearts by the Holy Spirit prompting us. To reach out to them with the love of God. Jesus said in John chapter 7. If any man thirsts let him come unto me. And he's talking about this living water. And he said whoever believes in me as the scripture said. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. John added this explanation. But this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive, up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So out of our innermost being, here's what I want to ask you as we finish up this evening. Do you want a refreshing of the Holy Spirit? A new surge of the Spirit of God. And so how do you, uh, this is just a perfect time. (laughs) 15 days into a 40-day prayer challenge and you're kind of zeroing in on things and restructuring. That, that is my word for 2018. I've been restructuring my life. And I told, I told the, the staff this yesterday morning in staff devotion that part of my restructuring, part of my restructuring <laughs> is that I've, um, I've started doing planks in the morning. And I hate planks. But my chiropractor says, uh, your back is probably not going to get any better if you don't do something like planks. And I want to say, but I hate planks. I hate planks. They're painful. But here's what I've done. Glorious day. 
me and Glorious Day, Christian Stanfield, and me and Glorious Day do planks in the morning. And while he's singing Glorious Day, I said, Jesus, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. And I'm, I'm now up to three planks in a five-minute song. And I'm like needing oxygen by that time. And I get up and I, I still hate planks. <laughs> but I love Glorious Day and thank you, Glorious Day, for getting me through. But this is where, and, and there's times in the day I think that God just wants to pray through us in the Spirit. And, and, and it ought to be like just normal. I want that. I want to walk in that. Not for a 40-day prayer challenge, but I, just, to, just to be driving to work or not even thinking, walking through the house, and all of a sudden you realize the Holy Spirit is praying through you. Oh, yes. That's what we need is a refreshing of the Holy Spirit. Not to categorize or characterize that we're Pentecostal and we believe in the Pentecostal experience. That, that is not why we should be walking in the Spirit. We should be walking in the Spirit because it's the normal thing to do for His church. Would you stand with me? Promise yourself. You don't have to promise anybody else, but you have to promise yourself. Call yourself by name. You will walk in the Spirit. You will live in the Spirit. You will pray in the Spirit. You will sing in the Spirit. And if you haven't been baptized and immersed in the Holy Spirit and been introduced to this heavenly language, the language that God gives you to talk for your Spirit, to communicate to Him, straight to Him, this is what he meant for you to do. This is what Paul thought the, the guys in Ephesus should have. And these Samaritans that got saved, they sent two apostles up there to say, make sure they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know, they, like they hadn't received the Holy Spirit, so they laid hands on them and prayed for them. They received the Holy Spirit. So this is the mark I was with my I was with my accountant this a couple weeks ago, and and uh, he does my taxes. Godly man, and he said, "Have you ever read the book by Francis Shaver, The Mark of the Christian?" I said, "No." He says, "You need to get that. That book will that book will change your life." <laughs> I said, "I will," and you need to get the book Night by Ellie Weissel and. And you won't put it down until you're finished with it, buddy. <laughs> so, like, you need that book. And I, and I got the book by Francis Shaver today at Barnes & Noble. It came in. I had to order it. And it's about that thick. So I'm like, yes, I can do this. But he talks about what is the mark of the Christian? What is the mark of the Spirit-filled believer? What is the mark of the Spirit? What identifies us as being filled with the Holy Spirit? You know what that is.